3, 2, 1, roll the footage. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Simon Severino, your host. And my guest today is theoretical physicist and president of the Origins Project Foundation, New York Times bestselling author of A Universe from Nothing and 11 other books. He's, uh, he, he is a rock star in the physics world, recipient of numerous international awards, and has written for the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, New Yorker. Welcome, everybody. Lawrence Krauss. <laughs> well, it's nice to be with you virtually. Lawrence, what are you passionate about right now? Oh, dear. Uh, well, I'm always passionate about uh, surprises that the universe uh, gives us every every week. There's some new surprise, the wonderful images coming from the James Webb Space Telescope. Developments here on Earth. Uh, I'm a I'm about to give a little presentation on this new fusion stuff, although I don't think it's going to produce a new energy on Earth. Passionate, of course, about the new book. Every time I write a book, I'm excited about it. It won't come out till till May. It's called The Edge of Knowledge. It's about what we know we don't know about the universe. But I'm also passionate and, and, and often concerned about about the, the sort of attacks on science. The, I, I, we need science to have a healthy society and to have sound public policy. And there are attacks from all sides on science. Um, most recently, I think the the, 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 the attacks on sort of um, free speech and open inquiry are what really concern me, that, that uh, science is not, um, education is not designed to make you comfortable. It's designed to make you uncomfortable. And there's this big effort around the world that keep people comfortable in their own little echo chambers. And, and science, the whole point of science is to expand our horizons and sometimes confront our biases and, and prejudices. And so I've been writing a lot about that recently, about various attacks that are happening within academia in the efforts to be politically correct. And so that's another passion, I guess. What do you see in the telescope that uh, listeners here should know? <laughs> well, there's there's a lot of things that I hope people will know. Uh, um, there, what you know? What what is amazing is that they should realize that the new telescope, the James Webb Space Telescope, is allowing us to look back to the earliest, almost the earliest moments of of, of visible light in the universe. It took, we think, it took a hundred, two hundred, three hundred million years after the Big Bang for stars to form, and the James Webb Space Telescope is designed to look all the way back to the first stars that formed, and to try and understand how they formed and and whether and 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 how then galaxies formed and and each every galaxy we see right now has a big black hole in the center of it and there's a big open question which formed first black holes or or stars and and all of that will help us understand how we got here i mean it's not related to our daily activities but ultimately it'll help us understand how we and our galaxy got here the other thing of course that it's going to be looking for which may be more uh, relevant or at least more immediately exciting to people is it's going to, James Webb Space Telescope is going to look at the atmospheres of planets around other stars and try and get evidence for life on those on those planets. And if we do, if we see evidence in any definitive evidence, and it's going to take a long time before we can say it's definitive, but if there's definitive evidence one way or another for life elsewhere in the universe, that will be a profound discovery. It'll mean we're not alone. That doesn't mean intelligent life. I'm talking about microbes and other things. But even so, even if that's true, 
it'll tell us that life is ubiquitous throughout the universe and that's a whole that changes our picture of the universe how can nothing create something well it's not that nothing creates something it's that something arises spontaneously out of nothing and it's a remark what what the what the case is that in science now nothing and something are not as different as they were before and and you know that's okay science causes us to change our our understanding of of words and ideas and it turns out very simply even something simple a simple kind of nothing like empty space without anything in it that you know no particles no radiation that turns out to be not so empty it's full of, it's a boiling brew bubbling brew of virtual particles that pop in and out of existence for a time scale so short you can't see them and that and ultimately under certain conditions out of nothing um near a black hole and other things out of nothing particles can appear spontaneously but due to the laws of quantum mechanics and so it means this distinction between nothing and something is not as severe as it was before the developments of modern physics but most exciting if if gravity is a quantum theory that means the laws of quantum mechanics apply to space and time themselves then it's possible for whole universes to spontaneously appear spaces and times that did not exist before to spontaneously appear space and time suddenly come into existence and it's possible even in such a universe for for that universe to for certain of those universes to survive for a long enough time for you and I to have this conversation and even to have a hundred billion galaxies each containing a hundred billion stars all from nothing without violating any laws of physics and that's a surprise and and then the, the biggest surprise maybe or the biggest lesson is if you asked what would be the properties of a universe that spontaneously arose from nothing and survived 13.8 billion years uh, then the characteristics of that universe would be precisely the characteristics of the universe that we measure out, outside with our gal with our telescopes right now that doesn't prove that's the case but it means it's it's plausible and it and for me it's nice to know you can create all that all of this can be created without any supernatural shenanigans and and for me that's quite exciting the idea that that all of this literally does not require any intelligent guidance because there's no evidence of it in the first place and when you say particles that's smaller than electrons neutrons well electrons right? are elementary particles i'm talking about elementary particles like electrons and the particles of light called photons and the particles that make up uh, the nuclei of atoms protons and neutrons actually they're made up of smaller of more fundamental particles called quarks all of those that's what i'm talking about when i'm talking about elementary particles and so it there is an emergence that is so quick that uh, it still can be measured and it creates something well we we can't look, look when i'm talking when i'm talking about this i'm talking about what's plausible we don't have a theory that takes us back to t equals zero uh, we don't we can't see all the way back to the beginning of the universe we can just use the ideas of physics that we now have and extrapolate them backwards um, we can see back pretty early we get at direct evidence of what happened in the first second of the big bang because then nuclear processes were going on and and ultimately producing from fundamental particles like quarks to protons and neutrons to the nuclei of light, light atoms like hydrogen and helium and lithium and we can measure those things today and those allow us to to work backwards and say what the properties of the universe were when it was one second old and the picture works perfectly we can predict more or less the precisely the amount of helium 
we measure in the universe, 25% of the universe is helium. We can measure all sorts of things. And, and so we, we have a really good empirical evidence of what the universe was like back to at least the first second or so of the Big Bang. Before that, we have to extrapolate a bit based on our ideas from fundamental particle physics and the things we measure at the Large Hadron Collider in Geneva and, uh, and, and sometimes based on what we measure in the universe uh, outside. Because the universe is a wonderful laboratory it was a the big bang is a wonderful particle ex physics experiment it was only as far as we know it happened once but now it's just data analysis but also there are processes going on in galaxies of incredible accelerators incredible energies so if we look out uh to cosmic rays we can we can look for the results of processes that we don't have the energies to produce here on earth so there's lots of ways to look out in the universe and learn more about fundamental science after 12 books on science, what is it that makes you wonder like a little child when you see it? Well, everything. I, 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 all you have to do to have a sense of awe and wonder is look up at the sky at night. Or I'll look out the window. And, and I mean, there's just on my window here. I've now, you know, I can watch the birds and I'm, every day I see different behaviors that are amazing. And, and, and so I guess the question I have which is really, or the way I'd put it, which is really the way my, my friend of mine, a writer, Cormac McCarthy, just put it when I was talking to him for a podcast. He said, how could you not be full of wonder and awe? I mean, how could you not be interested? That's probably a better question. What doesn't make you wonder? And and I hope, I hope that the people who are listening here don't have an answer to that. <laughs> <laughs> so you still are researching. What are questions that you are tackling now? Well, I mean, I, I, I've retired from my active career at university. I've been part of a particle physics experiment to look for dark matter. Most of the energy in most of the matter in the universe, at least five to 10 times as much matter as made up for by everything we see is actually some we think is made of some new type of elementary particle. And if it's if it's some new type of elementary particle, it's not just out there. It's in here and going through my body and your body as we speak. And so there are ways we can try and use to detect it. So I've, for many years, I've, thought, I've been working on new ways to try and detect possible dark matter candidates. And I'm still thinking about some of those, some ideas and, and actually doing some research in that regard. Um, and that's primarily the, the, uh, the, the, the main area that I've been thinking about from the point of view of physics. Um, uh, and, and, uh, well, and and I think also about this deeper question, which which is much harder to answer, which is what's responsible for the dark energy in the universe. Most of the energy in the universe resides in empty space, where there's nothing. But it, but that but that stuff literally weighs something. Empty space weighs something, and we don't understand why. That's the biggest mystery in science. And every now and then, I try to go back to that question and think about it. And I've made various stabs over time, but it's a it's a hard question that I think is going to take a long time to answer. What's the difference between dark matter and dark energy? That's a good question. Dark matter is 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 strange and exotic because you can't see it. It doesn't interact with light, but it's not that strange. It falls in a gravitational field. It's just like some new type of elementary particle that doesn't interact with with light. And you know, so it it, it, it in the galaxy it would collapse by gravity and 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 although it doesn't interact electromagnetically, it's not that it's not it it's it it's not any more strange than say particles that come from the sun called neutrinos, which also don't interact with light and go right through the earth. And those we can measure, 
they're not the dark matter, but the but the dark matter can be very much like them. But dark energy is much stranger because, it, first of all, it's not associated with any particles. It's literally associated with empty space. And what's weirder is it's gravitationally repulsive. Everything else is attractive. All, gravity is universally attractive. All particles attract each other and all kinds of energy that we normally know of is attractive, gravitationally attractive. But, but general relativity tells us that if we put energy in empty space, then it's gravitationally repulsive. It, it repels rather than attracts. And, we, and that's one of the reasons we're, we're pretty convinced it's out there is because we look at the universe and it's expanding, but that expansion is speeding up rather than slowing down. If the gravity was just, if, if the universe was full of just matter and radiation, then the expansion of the universe would slow down due to the gravitational attraction of all the objects within it. But the fact that it's speeding up tells us that it's the, the dominant energy in the universe actually is gravitationally repulsive and due to the energy of empty space. And it's strange because why should empty space have energy? We don't have an answer to that question. And, and that's exciting. Physicists and scientists in general actually like to not know things rather than know things because it means there's a lot more to learn and that's exciting. And so, as I say at the beginning of the new book, uh, I don't know is one of the most important sentences in science. In 15 years, how does life on our planet look like? Do we have abundant, cheap energy and a wonderful uh, libertarian utopia and um, everybody has knowledge and, uh, and safety? Well, uh, look, first of all, I don't make predictions about the near term. I like to say I don't make predictions about anything less than two, two trillion years in the future, because first of all, it's easy to do. And secondly, no one will be around to check the predictions. But more, I mean, human, hum, human life is complicated. And, and, and um, one can imagine many possible futures and the future is ours to decide, I think. But um, on my on my good days, I think perhaps reason will come and we'll come up with uh, ways to not produce carbon dioxide and to have a sustainable sources of energy um, and maybe an equitable division of resources around the world but on other days i look around and say well we haven't as a, a global community done a very good job even at the pandemic much less anything else so maybe we won't get our act together and maybe um, wealth will continue to be concentrated in fewer fewer hands and Governments will be paralyzed and, you know, it could go many different ways and, and it, but you know, that's frightening, but it's also exciting in some ways, because one of the things I like to say is I, when people ask me what I'll be working on three years from now, I like to say, I have no idea, man, because who knows what comes up between now and then. And, and that's part of the terror, the wonder and the excitement of being alive. Which of the 12 books was most fun to write and why? <laughs> oh, that's that's like asking which of your 12 children were most, did you most enjoy? Um, it, it's a, not an easy question to answer. I don't think in those terms, first of all. I generally don't think of most. And Every book has been very different. Literally every book has been very, very different. Some have taken me three or four years to write. Um, until my last book, until the climate change book, the fastest book I wrote was, was about nine months. But the climate change book I wrote, which was my last book, I actually wrote that in 12 weeks. And the reason was that I started, I, I turned to it when the pandemic began. And all my lectures and everything else, all my 
meetings were canceled. Every, the world shut down. And I kept trying to think, well, how could I do something useful? And then I thought, well, maybe I can. I've been thinking about this subject for some time. Maybe I can write a book. So normally I have at least two day jobs as well as writing. And I have a lot of other things to do. But during that period, I wrote I, I wrote for maybe 16 to 18 hours a day. And actually, the first draft I finished in, in under two months, which was a very strange experience. But the other thing about writing my books, which is which is a lot I like to say, like pregnancy and labor, um, is that after they're done, I have, I have very little memory of writing them, the details. And I, I think the reason is it's the same reason that people forget labor. If they if they didn't forget what labor was like, women wouldn't have more than one child. But you forget that, and I think the same is true for books. If you don't, if you if you remember the struggle and the agonies involved, you probably wouldn't write another book. But you tend, I just I tend to it's all a blur, and I just tend to remember the final product. You have a Substack newsletter that can be subscribed. What are you currently writing about? What can we expect in the next weeks? <laughs> well, again, I don't know what I'm gonna write about. Well, one of the things I do write about regularly once a month and that's kind of fun is I actually compile a list of interesting uh, news items on science, articles about science that have happened that month, usually 20 to 30. And once a month, I present that as, as a um, uh, uh, what I'm reading in science and, get, and, and, and with links so that people can get a, a, a see interesting science stories. And I think that's a nice service I can provide people. We also, um, the other thing that happens on my Substack site is we host my podcast. So I have lots of, I have a, a great number of interesting guests. Uh, uh, the last guest was Cormac McCarthy, the writer, but, but I, I've just in the, I'm, I'm wrapping up uh, three or four exciting interviews with well-known scientists and, and one with a Pulitzer prize winning journalist, uh, um, uh, Elizabeth Colbert, who, who wrote a book about, who wrote a, a book called The Sixth Extinction. And, um, and so there'll be some interesting, and maybe a few Hollywood people coming up. So that, that, that comes out twice a, twice a month in Substack as well. And I'm also planning probably a year end, every, I, I like to give people a Christmas gift and I'm planning usually do a little science lecture on that and there'll be a link there. But I'm also gonna be writing about, um, as I say, some of the things that concern me that are going on uh, with science and society. And, uh, and I have some guest authors that, that help out with that too. So it's a combination of, of reflections on science um, and reflections on society and information that people can, 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 can use, which sometimes I hope will aggravate people, aggravate them enough to get active and do something about it. And sometimes I hope that it'll just be things that will cause people to sit back and say, wow. So. And where's the best place to, to be in touch with your work? Is it lawrencekrauss.substack.com and, and subscribe there? Well, at this point, yeah, yeah. There's, a, there's another, I have a website which tries to include every, you know, all, have an archive of everything I've done. It's called lawrencemkrauss.com. And that you can look up, you know, my, my, not only my bio there and other things, but a long history of, of, of articles and media and videos over the last 10 to 20 years. And then the current stuff, lawrencekrauss.substack.com. And of course, I, for better or worse, continue to tweet every day. I wonder if I'll continue. Um, but so lkraus1 is my Twitter handle. And, and I try to keep people abreast of what I'm doing and what I'm thinking also, or things that upset me or things that excite me. 
um, on a daily basis, more or less, with Twitter. Your your latest tweet, 21 hours ago, the edge of knowledge, unsolved mysteries of the cosmos. Who should grab it? Well, I mean, I mean, that's that's a tweet pointing out that my new book happens to be for sale on Amazon even before it's coming out. So it's kind of an advertisement. Um, the tweet before that, I think, was about um, well, there are two tweets before I give a sense of the kind of diversity of interests that are that I'm talking about. The one before that was on an interesting article on a way to potentially uh, uh, sequester and remove carbon from the atmosphere, which may be very important for climate change. And the one before that was was a link to a very interesting article by, in, in the New York Times that shows uh, the how a, a young brave physicist uh, braved many attacks for, for trying to seek truth in spite of the new sort of political correctness police and and it's a and so i try you know so that's a gives an example of the range of things that, that might be there thank you so much for doing this and for sharing your views on science and on society with everybody we know now where to get it thank you lawrence kraus for being here please keep doing the good work and um Thank you for being here. Well, thank you very much. I'll keep trying and I hope, uh, hope uh, I can keep uh, getting people excited about the universe. Keep rolling. What if your business would run well even when you are on vacation? Discover how 1,600 business owners have regained their freedom using the Strategies Prints blueprints. How they enjoy living their dream and watching their business scale. Get the exact checklists they use to go from stressed to fulfilled using the Strategies Prince method. Order your copy of Strategies Prince 12 Ways to Accelerate Growth for an Agile Business on Amazon today. And if you love it, leave us a review. For more information, head over to strategiesprints.com.